This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Several weeks ago, Netflix dropped the latest season of its highly acclaimed show, The Crown. The fourth season tells the story of the British monarchy in the 80s and 90s and depicts the Queen's relationship with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and features Princess Diana. With so many of the characters depicted still alive and in recent-ish memory for a number of viewers, the show has provoked controversy like never before. While The Crown always depicted the past, this year the season has drawn hullabaloo from those who claim the show is misleading viewers about the true history of the monarchy. Netflix even recently put out a statement that said it would not issue a disclaimer reminding viewers that the drama was fictional. I'm gonna read some of its statement. We have always presented The Crown as a drama and we have every confidence our members understand it's a work of fiction that's broadly based on historical events. As a result, we have no plans and see no need to add a disclaimer. We thought we would tackle some of the issues stirred up by the season of The Crown by getting a sense of how they've been wrestled with in other historical stories especially the most important story of all. Hint, hint, we will be talking about depictions of the life of Christ. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, you are a crown junkie and have been following the season and also following the controversy. I want to hear your gut check. It's not just that people had opinions about the season of the crown. You know, it was actually a government comment. It was the culture secretary, the secretary of culture for the UK saying that, you know, Netflix should have some sort of disclaimer that the crown is fiction. I do have to say the crown is a show that does I'm sure you've seen shows like this. You know, I kind of did the same thing after O.J. Simpson docuseries that was out a couple years ago. After each episode, you kind of want to pull up your phone and start Googling and do the <laughs> fact check. You know, go, how much did that really happen? Did this really happen? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's some episodes that clearly play into that. That, you know, there's there's one episode this season in particular where you're like, did did that really happen? You know, it was interesting is, yes, that the reason they did a whole episode is, yes, it seems too crazy to be true that someone, you know, broke into the, the queen's bedroom. But, um, <laughs> you know, in the first few seasons, you have this, the fact checks are like, well, that person, you know, actually wasn't part of that conversation or, you know, this was, you know, an amalgam of a few different people or that kind of thing. This season, because the situation with Diana and Charles Diana had the, these interviews, these on-the-record interviews late in her life where she kind of laid out her her beef very much, very clearly. So part of this season, a lot of this is very much from Diana's perspective, and part of it is that the show is making a bit more of a point about some of the ways in which the family is starting to fall apart. There's always been kind of the marital tension stuff. There's always been a lot of you know discussion about infidelity and that kind of thing. 
But I do think that the focus is a little bit more on that this season. Obviously, that makes things a little more sensitive. I have loved the way in which that show, every episode, the show itself overall as a broad arc has something to say, but then also each episode usually has something to say about what it means to be human. But a lot of it is this question of authority, responsibility, you know, an institution that's larger than yourself. Duty. I mean, yes, extremely. How much of yourself do you surrender to the duty? Who gets to define what that duty is? Those are some of the key questions. Last season, I mean, I think just about every Christian outlet wrote an article about, about this one particular episode that focused on kind of midlife issues and faith issues. It was a fairly profound hour of television. Yeah, it's just interesting to see it coming to a, 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 <laughs> a bit of a head this season in terms of people saying, okay, well, maybe, you know, it, it does, you know, this season that the royal family does, it's never looked brilliantly wonderful through this, through the lens of this, of this series. But this season is in the same way that kind of culturally through the 80s and 90s, the, the family took some, some pretty big public image hits. It's definitely taken those public image hits again and afresh right now, reopening old wounds. Morgan, you are, you are not a super fan. What's been your view as a non-heavy viewer of the show? I think that's what actually has kind of been interesting to me is I have been actually reading a number of articles <laughs> about the controversy that this seems to be provoking and a little bit astonished, I guess, by the anxiety that a show that everyone knows is a fictionalized depiction of something seems to be causing. When I started thinking about this particular episode that we're going to do, which we will be talking about The Chosen, which is a show that depicts the life of Jesus. It brought me back to conversations that I had at the start of my journalism career about Noah Aronofsky's film that came out a couple of years ago and that there was a lot of anxiety from Christians about how that particular part of the Bible was going to be depicted. And it was a reminder to me of just all the you know, how much we have invested in stories and how people depict them to the wider audience. I think there has there's something to be said, too, for the particular medium, right? And from talking to you and in, in conversations with other people, it's reminded me of <laughs> just the various, like, details, but also larger truths that get communicated when you are putting something on screen. What is able to be told in ways that is in some ways, even more powerful when it's on screen, even if it's less like, I don't know what to call it, detailed true, factually true, or it's more up to like the artist's interpretation. There can be like larger points that are made. Yeah, I also find it fascinating too that you were talking about how you have this tendency to go on to Wikipedia or to Google to see what was like actually true after you watch that. I'm wondering how many other people have those same types of instincts to go learn more about things versus just kind of accepting what's going on there. Because that's always been one of my favorite things to do is to kind of learn more about and see the differences between what I understand is like the artist version of it and what I understand as being the thing that they put out there. But clearly, as referenced by the statement, there's this anxiety that the crown feels that people are not going to do that and that they won't be able to distinguish fact from fiction, truly. So... I really want to hear from our guest about how he's thinking through these things. Can you tell everyone who it is? I do, I do too. And, and I should probably give it a, another gut check here, which is 
you you were mentioning that one thing I wanted to say was there's a you know a certain gamification like it, the crown has this kind of game <laughs> gamified sense of encouraging that kind of like group you know it takes me back to like the 90s when you know you remember when there used to be like these reality TV shows like Survivor and the Amazing Race and stuff and then people would all rush on you may you may be too young for this people would rush online for the, the kind of the recap so even if you like had watched the show kind of part of the fun was I kind of feel like it's the olden days of television where people are watching the show and then recapping it together. <laughs> and we're having a similar thing, you know, with this the show that we're now going to kind of pivot to and talk about The Chosen. I mean, the number of people that I've had the same conversation with on social and in person about The Chosen is fairly interesting because it's, you know, it's a, it's a show about the people chosen by Jesus to be disciples and followers. Kind of everyone has the same response where I have a lot of friends in, in Christian media and, you know, the expectation is like, I didn't expect it to be all that great. I watched it kind of semi-reluctantly. And then it was great. I totally watched it and got totally sucked in. My family and I actually, we just finished our second watch through, which I, we never rewatch stuff. So it's a solid show. So I'm thrilled that our guest today is Dallas Jenkins, who's the creator and showrunner of the series, The Chosen. The Chosen is now shooting its second season. It broke records as the largest crowdfunded media project ever been watched so far by more than 50 million people in 180 countries, translated into more than 50 languages. Before The Chosen, Jenkins directed the film The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. He has other credits. You know, you, you can check his IMDb page as well as I can. They're about to have The Chosen Christmas special coming up uh, this weekend. Dallas, we are thrilled to have you on Quick to Listen. Thanks for coming on the, on the pod. Well, thanks so much for having me. That's a great, great topic. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting about it. Okay, Dallas, just very easy softball question, obviously. That's how we start all our guests. No, just kidding. I want to know really about the framework that you used when you decided that you wanted to tell Jesus' story. So for people who haven't watched the show, as Ted was saying, you are depicting people who are in the Gospels, but you are writing a lot of details and storyline into these people's lives that is not actually written in the Gospels. So I really want to know what were the principles that helped you figure out what you wanted to include, what you wanted to focus on, and what stuff you may not have wanted to include. <laughs> well, I will try to answer that question in uh, Thank you. and not Thank take you. up the entire take up the entire uh, hour. <laughs> because, uh, that's that's literally. We'll like just the, interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the that's the uh, the absolute ultimate question. When I, when I first decided to do a, a show about Jesus, right away, the decision to do a multi-season show is by definition making the decision to add things that aren't in scripture. Because if you take just one story from the gospel, so for example, The Chosen began with a short film I did for my church's Christmas Eve service called The Shepherd. It was about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds, and it was 18 minutes long. And if I would have just done what you often see which is essentially a reenactment of the Bible verses, the film would have been about five minutes. But because th these Bible stories that we know and love so well are actually just typically a couple verses a piece from the Gospels. So in a movie, what they typically do when they don't want to risk you know, upsetting anybody or doing anything that's not in Scripture, they just basically go from miracle to miracle, Bible verse to Bible verse, and Jesus is the main character, and and so we show him heal a blind man, and then he walk, and then he keeps walking, and and he and he finds another person to heal or save, and then Simon has an argument with him, and he rebukes Simon, and they they go to the next Bible story. For a lot of us believers, 
that can be very interesting because it's fun to see the stories we know portrayed on screen and to see the different actors do them. And, and it's a nice visual, but it's not emotive. It's not, I, I would say that there are very few examples of all the Jesus films and miniseries ever done that you could say, I love it. I love watching it multiple times. It makes me cry. It, I enjoy it as much as I do any other film or TV show. You know, maybe Jesus of Nazareth, of course, the Passion of the Christ. But other than that, it's typically just almost like a, a history presentation. And so when I'm decided to do a multi-season show where we're going from episode to episode, season to season, following these characters, like you do with The Crown. I'm not a crown watcher. My wife is obsessed with it. But, you know, for me, when I was making that short film about the birth of Christ, I was on a treadmill, you know, each day watching like The Wire and Breaking Bad and binge watching all these shows with my wife and Friday Night Lights. Those are all shows that influenced The Chosen. I thought, man, think of what we could do if we were able to really dig into these stories and dig into these people. This is why I said the answer to your question is long, because that's the intro to the answer. That's the the decision to do it in and of itself is by definition a risky, controversial choice because you cannot tell these stories in a multi-season format without adding backstory, without giving character development. The choice to do that is a dangerous choice, which is why when people criticize us for it, I mean, the vast majority of people who've seen the show are huge fans, but we'll occasionally get the please, in season two, don't add anything that's not in scripture. <laughs> and it's like, like, oh gosh, that's that's cute that you think that we haven't already had these conversations and, and we haven't already considered the, the ramifications of what we're doing. Once we've made that decision, then it's, okay, well, I'm an evangelical believer. I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe the gospels are perfect in God's, in God's word. So I have no agenda to change anything to teach the world some new truth about Jesus that they already can't find. None of that is, is the case. It's how do I tell these stories in a way that is plausible? That's our first rule. It has to be plausible. But it also has to honor Scripture, honor the intention of Scripture, honor the intention of Jesus's message, honor the people that we're telling these stories about. So, you know, Jesus and the disciples— those are all people who God cares very deeply about. I mean, he cares about all of us equally, of course, but clearly he had a lot to say about Jesus and the disciples. And so I have to honor that and not contradict any of the intentions or character of the, of the stories or of Jesus. Once I believe passionately through prayer, through preparation, through study, through my my circle of influencers and, and, and consultants and friends and my co-writers, that we are doing that then I'm comfortable and confident in writing plenty of stories and plenty of backstories and plenty of scenes that aren't in scripture, as long as they fit into that filter. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about that story, but but I did want to pause for a second on that question about wanting to honor the people that the stories are about. I mean, this is kind of where I think some of the rubber hits the road on the questions that, you know, the the crown thing is is talking about. And we've seen it, you know, bigger issues you know, two that come to mind are in the recent film, uh, Richard Jewell, uh, that Clint Eastwood directed. There's uh, this uh, journalist, uh, Kathy Scruggs, who's a real person. And in that film, she's portrayed as a, a sleeping with a source to get information. You know, that never happened in reality. In fact, would be a huge, like the worst thing you could say about a journalist. So there was a, a, not just a kerfuffle, but a fair bit of kind of professional outrage about, about that choice. But, you know, Clint Eastwood was like, well, you know, we're you know doing this for a certain kind of storytelling aspects. And you, you had the same kind of thing 
with this film that I said we're not big rewatchers, but I do have a young daughter. So we have, like many other families, watched The Greatest Showman a, a billion times. You know, the Jenny Lind uh, character, uh, who is portrayed as kind of a, you know, a temptress type figure in, in that film. Apparently she was uh, apparently not at all historically accurate. Apparently she was quite the uh, moral stalwart in her way. And, and of course, uh, in, in, that, in that film, which is about P.T. Barnum, she is portrayed as this great, you know, hero who is, and a uh, wonderful guy who, of course, in real life, not so much. And so I am curious about decisions that you, you might have hit. The term that has come to mind when we've watched The Chosen is subtle. We're like, this is the first kind of subtle Bible, mo- Bible show we've seen. And I said, you know, this is the first show where, first kind of Jesus-y show or movie where I picked more stuff up the second time I watched it. There's a lot of jokes and a lot of just observations that I didn't catch the first time that I caught the second time. I'm like, that just is not a thing that most filmmakers and they're doing Bible stories are interested in doing. It's a little bit more hit you over the head. Now, sometimes that can be to good effect. Mel Gibson, you know, is, is he's not aiming for subtlety in the passion of the Christ. So there's a lot of characters who have subtlety and who have kind of ambiguity. But I was curious about whether that was a tension where you're like, are we making this guy look too good? Are we making this guy look too too bad? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And and I know exactly what you're talking about. So I'll give you an example First of all, the line as to what constitutes crossing, you know, or you know, what, where where we officially cross the line into now we're, we're we're venturing into slander. This is a scary thing I'm about to say, but it's it's somewhat up to to the the writers. I mean, it's because it's different for everybody. I mean, I have been so in, in episode one, for example, we show, or in the first four episodes, we show Simon Peter fighting for money, gambling, arguing with his brothers-in-law pretty harshly. We see an argument with his wife. So the vast majority of people who saw all that thought it was, and we believe, of course, because we wrote it, a plausible portrayal of a pre-Jesus Simon Peter. We didn't feel like we went over the line into showing him, you know, sleeping around or some of these things that are that I would consider extreme, or murdering somebody, for example. However, we have been criticized for our portrayal of Simon, for everything from people who believe that him doing work on the Sabbath is such a an egregious sin back then, especially what? that it's not <laughs> it's not plausible. Now, of course, you're an evangelical. Mm, you're right. saying that it's not as shocking to you as it would be to a Jewish person. Right. No, we had a few yeah. Jewish consultants say that would never happen. Now we had a few others who said I could see that happening, and we portrayed it in the episode as being a big deal. So on our first draft of the script. It was just Simon was doing it because he needed money. Our Jewish Messianic Jewish consultant said that's impossible. So then what we did was we didn't take it out, but we changed it to make it a really big deal that he had to come up with big justifications for doing it. The, the range of response is based on your own personal issue. So for example, I, we just got an email the other day from someone who was who loved the show, but said, you really need to be more accurate. It's not true, or I don't remember if he said the word, it's not true, but but showing Simon being harsh with his brothers-in-law, that bothered that guy. As you can see, it's kind of a, to each their own kind of response. Some people are really bothered by small that something that I consider to be perfectly normal and small. To me, when we write Simon Peter and look in the Gospels and see some of the egregious things that he said and did, even after he'd met Christ and followed Christ, even in the days around his death, I go, Gosh, it's perfectly plausible and perfectly within 
what I know about human psychology and human behavior, which is something that I study quite a bit, that Simon Peter would be someone who's more reckless. And reckless people tend to be, when they're in fear of losing something, they will do anything to protect it, and including gambling or including working on the Sabbath. Or, you know, because he was desperate to protect his family. He cared deeply about his wife. He was, they were, they were deep in debt. The Romans were oppressing them. He had lots and lots of reasons to justify doing what he did. His brother Andrew, of course, and his wife Eden did not make those choices and were very offended and upset that he did. So portraying all of that, I believe, falls into the category of plausible, historically accurate. Now that historically accurate doesn't mean factual, but accuracy can mean it's back then they were significantly oppressed by the Romans, deep in debt, and lots of people did things in desperation to survive. Is it a fact that Simon Peter gambled in a fight club <laughs> to do that? Of course not. We don't know that. Is it plausible? I would say it's it's plausible. Matthew, the tax collector. We know historically that tax collectors were hated by the Jews for betraying their people and working for the Romans, disrespected by the Romans for being Jewish. We know tax collectors obviously were financially minded. We know that they were numbers people because they were accountants. We know that Matthew was a fax guy. The first chapter of his book is nothing but a genealogy divided into three equal groups of 14 names apiece. And as we're writing all that out, I'm like, boy, he sounds like he's on the Asperger spectrum. Chose a, uh, a field in which he was a social outcast and that didn't seem to bother him. I have a daughter who's autistic. I'm on the Asperger's spectrum. Not, not significantly, but I, I know the special needs community extraordinarily well. That went into, all right, let's portray Matthew as being on the autism spectrum. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Never been done before in a Bible project. It'd certainly make it more human. It would certainly make it more relatable. It would give him a personality and a something specific that we think can really set this show apart. Sure enough, it's probably been the most, other than our portrayal of Jesus, the most responded to portrayal in the whole show. We hear every every day from parents of autistic children all over the world. We hear from autistic or Asperger's people who are so moved by seeing themselves portrayed on screen and seeing that Jesus was able to not, quote unquote, heal someone with that issue, but actually make use of it. Is it factual? No. And we've had a few people say, how dare you portray Matthew as having that problem? Or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, or portraying some of his OCD tendencies. There's nothing in scripture that would have said that. How, if that's, you know, why would you slander him in that way? And I just kind of chuckle and say, all right, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. The show isn't for you, which is perfectly fine. But it's depending on each person's own issues. And so I would say, is it factual that Matthew had Asperger's? No, it's not factual. Is it plausible? I think absolutely. You know, we've been talking about the crown, right? And using that as a foil to talk about this. And as someone who hasn't really watched the crown, it has made me wonder, you know, do they have an agenda, right? And how they're trying to depict this royal family. And so my question back to you is like, do you have an agenda when it comes to how you want to portray Jesus ultimately and what your takeaway is? Or are you almost kind of like, we are going to give people this broad cast of characters from which they can like learn more about Jesus, but we're not necessarily going to try to like spoon feed this one message about Christ in it. I would say my number one agenda is I want to introduce people to the authentic Jesus. The reason I use the word introduce is because there are some people, including myself, who I believe, even though we've been Christ followers our whole lives, and we've, I, I was a Bible major in college, I've studied scripture, I, I believe that I know Jesus 
fairly well from a you know as as much as a human can. I shouldn't say I, I don't know him better than others. I'm just saying as as much as I, I I could, I believe that I knew Jesus in my limited human understanding. But of course, by doing this show and digging in deeper to what it might have been for him to be a human being, I feel like I'm getting to know him even better. And I believe that the portrayals that I've seen of him in the past have largely not been authentic. So that's my number one agenda is you as the audience are experiencing an authentic Jesus that I, Dallas, as the creator of the show, are experiencing and, and discovering as well. So to do that, that, that brings me to my second agenda, or th- I don't know if this is an agenda or just an execution, but I believe that if you see Jesus through the eyes of those who actually met him, you can be changed and impacted in the same way they were. That's why Jesus is one of five or six main characters. He's not the main character. Jesus actually makes for a not great protagonist or main character in a drama. If you know anything about drama, and, and, and most people do because they like good shows and good movies, the main character needs to learn something. The main character tends to grow, tends to start the movie or the show in one spot and end up in a different spot emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is perfect. Uh, Jesus doesn't need, to, I mean, we know in the scripture, it says he grew in wisdom and understanding when he was in his teenage years, but you know, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. So he doesn't make for a great protagonist. And so that alone, I think, is a shift in this show. As we do it, we see Jesus through the eyes of Simon and Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus and Matthew, the tax collector, all these people who have different backgrounds and different perspectives and different things to learn. And then they have problems to solve. They have questions to be answered. And we believe that if we can show you, the audience, if you, the audience, can identify with at least one of these people and identify with their struggles and identify with their needs and their questions, then you can also then identify with the solution and that the Jesus providing the answer to these issues can do that for you as well. So that's my my other agenda. I think my final point would be that it is in the exploring of Jesus's humanity that I believe makes the show what it is. His divinity is inherent. We see him do miracles in season one. We acknowledge him as the son of God in season one. He says, I am the Messiah. He says he is the son of God. So that part we've got covered. That part has been covered dozens of times in in other Jesus movies and miniseries to the point where he looks divine when you see him. Like he doesn't even look like a (laughs) right. Right. He's got, you know, almost a halo around his head. So I'm just not as interested in that. And it's why you won't see tons of the miracles that we do choose to portray and the stories we do choose to tell aren't going to be quite as much the big supernatural stuff like Jesus in the desert talking to Satan or Jesus being baptized and, and, and the dove comes down and you hear God's voice. A, I'm not so sure that everyone who was in in the area heard God's voice or not. I mean, I it, you know, I think some of the disciples did, but it's tough to know like what that would have sounded like, and I'm I'm too scared to try to portray it. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I think that that was probably a very personal thing. But B, you know, I think that anytime you portray something supernatural like that, the audience is just distracted by trying to figure out how you did it. They're not actually engaged in the story. They're just going, "Oh, that's really cool." And, and oh, I didn't, I didn't see Jesus that way, whatever it is. So leaving all that aside, I'm really passionate about exploring his humanity. And so that's why you see him in this show, tell jokes, get teased, be sarcastic, do his bedtime prayers, cut his arm, make his own food, start his own fire, stretch out his muscles, do a favor for his friends because his mom asked him to, which is the, the, ultimately the heart of the, the, the wedding at Cana. Finding the personal, finding the human is really what my primary agenda is for this show. And I believe that by doing that, people can be 
closer to Jesus than ever before. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and it strikes me that that actually the divinity, uh, the divine aspect, and some of the unanswered questions about how much does Jesus know as perfect divine, all those kinds of questions that we debate theologically, those are delightfully treated as sources of humor. You know, the the kind of constant refrain, the jokes, subtle again, jokes uh, from Jesus saying, uh, that's a conversation for another time. You know, well, uh, you're, yeah, you're referring to like Simon Peter. He says, Jesus is asking him what's on his mind. And Simon Peter says, well, you already know, don't you? He says, that's a conversation for another time. Simon starts to talk and Jesus cuts him off and kind of completes his sentence. And Simon says, see, you already know what I'm thinking anyway. And Jesus says, Simon, everybody knows what you're thinking all the time. It does not take God's wisdom. Um, so <laughs> yeah. that's, that is, I admit, a little bit of me dancing on the line of how much does Jesus know and how much does he not know? And I, I confess, I'm somewhat in the middle on that issue. There are some people who believe that Jesus knew literally everything at all times and was granted the exact same wisdom as his father has so that while he was on earth, so there are some people who even think he wouldn't have ever cut himself because he would have known where the, the table was and he wouldn't have bumped into it. You know, And I see, evident, I see moments in the gospels where it seems like Jesus is asking his father for for wisdom or for knowledge or for, I, I'm not sure Jesus walked around just saying, you've got seven fingers hidden behind your back right now. I, I think that it's possible, if not plausible, that, that he did subjugate himself to be a human being who was perfect and who was granted wisdom by his father, but not necessarily in perpetuity at every single moment. I don't go out right and say that in the show because I don't want to unnecessarily create a, a, you know, a riot on, on certain blogs. Um, <laughs> or in Christianity today, but I do think we can kind of walk that line a little bit without 100% coming to a conclusion. Sure. Right. If he, if he, if he grows in wisdom and stature that, you know, doesn't say, and then he stopped growing in wisdom and stature. I was wondering about the introduction of new characters in one sense, you know, you said you don't want to play with the biblical characters and have, have them do things that are, you know, antithetical or contrary to what they did in scripture, which means that when you create a character then you have a lot of freedom for what it is that they're going to do. But it does seem to me that as you try to create tension in a show like The Chosen, as you try to create more characters who are foils or antagonists, there's a danger. And I think that the show, at least in season one, avoids this, where you know every time you see a new character, oh, I bet that character is going to be you know a, a villain because script can play with that person a little bit more. And I, I think this is probably especially tricky with the women, because obviously there's an effort to uh, include more women in, in, in the story that you're telling. Uh, there's an effort to show, uh, I think, a, a greater ethnic diversity than I think you get in a lot of typical Jesus films. I'm curious about the tension that you may feel in introducing new characters and making sure that they also feel lived in and real and not just foils for these historical figures. It's for sure a delicate balance, but yes, we absolutely get more freedom when we create characters. We believe we have some freedom with the biblical characters, but it's limited. You know, there are limits to how much I would show Simon or Mary Magdalene or Matthew cross the line, as it were. There there are some limits because, A, we, we want to be, we not only want to be responsible and not slanderous, we want to be historically accurate. So I, I don't believe that if Simon Peter would have, just using this as a bad example, had an affair that that wouldn't have been somehow addressed in scripture. Or, I mean, he, I mean, it, it, every single one of David's sins was, <laughs> uh, big sins was, was placed on display for us to read about thousands of years later. So I just don't think that's, that's accurate. And, and, and I don't want to be ridiculous, but yeah, with new characters, 
does give us a little bit more freedom. Making them feel lived in, I don't know that it, it's necessarily more or less with with new characters than than other characters because I think we really are working hard to make even our historically factual our our, our our figures who lived in history, like Simon, we're trying to make them as lived in as possible too. So it's just, I guess there's there's no limits to how much we can make them live feel lived in. There are just limits in what directions we go. As you know, everyone is different. I mean, some people are more extreme. I think Simon Peter is an extreme person, so his strengths and weaknesses are going to dance on the outer edges of the line. You know, I have friends and family members who are pretty tucked in people in general. So they're not going to sin any less than anyone else, but their sins are going to look different. They're not going to be quite as as destructive to others as they are perhaps to themselves. You know, for example, in season two, we develop more this character of Rama, who is Thomas's, the, the disciple Thomas, who you are introduced to in episode five of season one, where he is the caterer for the wedding, for the wedding at Cana. And he has a woman that he works with who we kind of see little glimpses of potential romance between the two of them. And she's a fictional character. So we develop them more in, in this season and in future seasons. And we, one of the reasons we created her was because A, we thought it would be interesting, but B, we thought, so that's an area where we could develop a little bit of a romance where it's, we're a little bit more delicate when it comes to some of our main characters. So for sure, uh, it gives us more freedom, but we still want to be somewhat careful in that we don't just create a new character for the sole purpose of melodrama. Um, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. right now this is the character we can pour all of our, of our big stuff into <laughs> um, because then it's, then, then it's almost like cheating. Our goal is to create effective drama, even within the fact that we've, we, we've got historical characters that we're based on. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of grieve, breathe, receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. What are your-
your expectations regarding biblical literacy in your audience? Do you expect people that will have watched your show to be pretty comfortable with knowledge of the Gospels or an overview of Christ? Do you expect people to be reading their Bibles after they view it? And how do those expectations of familiarity and then future interest in the Bible affect what you do or do not depict? Here's the headline to my answer, which is, <laughs> um, I don't think about it. Now, that, saying, that sounds harsh, but I hope you understand when I explain here. When I'm writing and my, when my co-writers are writing, we really, really don't have the capacity, brain-wise, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, to think about anything other than writing a great show. Writing a good show, writing a show that people really want to watch is extraordinarily difficult. It's why most of them aren't good. Um, and, and <laughs> I've been making movies for 20 years and not all of them have been good. It's extremely hard. And so all we can do is work the best we can to, to make a, as great of a show as possible. That goes hand in hand with a show that is honoring to scripture and doesn't contradict the, the character uh, or intentions of the gospels or of Jesus. So that's another weight that we carry. So that's two now, two really, really difficult weights that we carry. Thinking about how the audience will react and what decisions they'll make in their, in their personal relationship with God and how much Bible they've read or how much they will read is just not possible for us to think about, even if I tried. And I don't want to try. I don't want to be thinking about that because there's such a wide range. I have people who are Bible scholars who have told me that they were watching a scene and thought, wait a minute, that's not in scripture. Or, ooh, they got that wrong. I had a pastor literally tell me this the other day. It was the scene with Jesus healing the paralytic through the roof, which we do in episode six. And he has this exchange with the Pharisees. He thought, oh, they got that wrong. Jesus didn't actually talk to them. He just thought about what they were thinking. Get up in the scriptures and saw, oh gosh, they did get it right. Jesus did have this ex verbal exchange with them. Now, you may be thinking, well, I knew that. I knew Jesus talked to the Pharisees in that scene. And that's my point. Everyone is different. Everyone has different memories. I, I actually argued with someone who's been a student of the Bible their whole lives, who thought that when the disciples showed up upon Jesus and the woman at the well, that they said to Jesus, like they expressed their displeasure that Jesus was with alone with a woman out in the middle of the day. And I said, no, they didn't say anything. And sure, it's the same thing. He looked up in the scriptures. It said that they thought amongst themselves. I'm just giving you two examples that are actually similar. So they probably weren't the best two examples because they were so similar. But my point is scholars have been renewed in their knowledge of scripture. I have been renewed in my knowledge of scripture writing it. I have been surprised multiple times. Like, oh my gosh, I forgot that that's even in there. Like, did you remember, for example, I didn't remember that Jesus didn't only raise Lazarus from the dead and didn't only raise the servant's daughter from the dead. He raised this other boy, little boy from the dead whose mom was walking past him in a funeral procession. I was a Bible major in college, and I forgot about one of Jesus's resurrections. And I just saw it like the other day, and I thought, gosh, I, I don't know if that's a good scene to put into the show or not, but I didn't remember it. So right. the reason I'm saying all this is because I'm illustrating that there are those of us who have studied the Bible who are learning new things in this show. And there are many people who don't know the Bible, who love the show, who don't know the Bible at all, even though there's lots of Easter eggs and insider stuff in the Bible. In fact, many Christians have said, this is a really good show, but you have to be a Christian to enjoy it because otherwise you won't get all these references. And I, to that, I say, no, actually one of our writers is not very familiar with the Bible and his job is to make sure these stories are good drama. When I watch Game of Thrones, I didn't read the books. When I watch 
Breaking Bad, I don't know what the writers are thinking. I don't know any of these characters the first episode. We learn the setting and the characters as we watch, and that's what The Chosen is like. Well, I'm just it's just making me try to like process all this stuff with The Crown, right? Because I have been thinking when I've been reading these discussions, right? Is there some sort of responsibility, may I say, that the the story producers and screenwriters are abdicating, right? If people may come away with a sense of things being one way and maybe they're not exactly that way, right? What I think you I hear you saying is we have overriding principles that we're trying to shoot for and we're trying to create something that works really well on TV and feels like an actual storyline, not just a recreation of details that you heard in scripture. Absolutely. And I, and I think our job is harder than the job of the crown because the Jesus and, and the disciples in some, some faith traditions are, you know, the disciples are saints. And, you know, my portrayal of Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, as an evangelical, I have, a, I have a different perspective on her than Catholics do. And so I've, I've been attacked by some Catholics for showing her as stressed out and worried at the beginning of episode five when she's looking for Jesus and that she looked like a common person and Joseph looked like a common blue collar person. And they see them as more king and queen-like because they're the, especially her is the, the mother of us all and the mother of Jesus. And I'm just like, yeah, I see that monstrously differently than you do. But then I have other Catholics who are like, this is a beautiful portrayal of Mary. So, I mean, it, it runs the gamut. And and these are people who are worshipped like Jesus is, prayed to, or at least referred to in prayer like the saints and, and Mary Mother. These are people for whom billions of people around the world have dedicated their lives I would say when it comes to the crown, yes, there's big fans of the royal family. Any movie or show that you do about historical figures, there's people who feel protective of them. But I would say that there's nothing more delicate than doing a story about Jesus other than maybe doing one on Muhammad, because doing one can get you killed. So I think our job is a little bit harder. But I would say if, if someone happens to believe that Simon Peter gambled and was in a fight club before he met Jesus. And they happen to believe that that's historically factual just because they saw the show and didn't do enough research to find out that it's not in the Bible. I don't know that that's necessarily a inherently destructive thing. I don't know that that's a bad thing that's going to hurt their spiritual journey. What would be bad is if we portrayed Jesus as imperfect or if we portrayed Jesus's message as something other than what it was kind of like a all roads lead to God kind of message, or that sin isn't really a big deal kind of thing. Those types of things, those those can be destructive. I don't think it's destructive, and some people do, and I just disagree, for them to have a piece of history that they believe is factual because they watch the show, but it happens to not be factual. It just happens to be plausible. So I think, I think there's a difference. Well, let me ask you about the flip side of that, which is, I think, the, the benefit. We, we mentioned you know the Passion of the Christ and, and the Mel Gibson thing. You know, well, we didn't talk about number one box office R-rated movie of all time and all this discussion about passion dollars and how there's going to be this great flood of pursuing, you know, Christian film goers. And, and, and there was, you know, kind of this attempt at kind of a, a Christian movie boom. And, and you, I think, were part of that. Kind of the, some of the takeaway was there's interest in Christian movies if they're about Jesus. But it's hard to hard to draw some audiences. I mean, you can sell tickets to churches, and they can kind of rally other people. With kind of a hey, Christian obligation to go see this Christian movie, support Christian filmmakers. That's all well and good in, in its in its way. But kind of the natural like people going and, and are passionate about seeing it and re- see, you know rewatching. The question is, does that <laughs> does that exist if 
the movie is not about the man himself. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to see The Chosen, which is like, we're going to go right adjacent to that. Here's a, here's a show that is, Jesus is one of the figures, but it's not actually a show about Jesus. It lets us tell some stories without necessarily having to, to tell the, the same exact story, the, the exact same way that's been done in a number of other Jesus films. I'm, I'm just curious about your takes, having, having been on both sides of that coin, doing films that had faith issues. Yeah. I mean, I would say The Chosen is a Jesus show. I mean, it's, yes, we, you know, I kind of compare it to The West Wing, where the President Bartlett in, on the TV show, The West Wing, was was the central figure, just wasn't the main character, meaning, you, you know, he was one of five. I think The Chosen is similar. Jesus is the main, he is, he is the focus. He is the central figure. You know, there have been examples of movies, Christian movies, that broke past that ceiling of of lo- the the ones that I was doing the ones that I was doing were kind of they were low budget and they they did a couple million dollars at the box office sold a few hundred thousand DVDs and that was about the gist of it then you 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 have seen some breakthroughs like literally a movie called breakthrough was one of them god's not dead and i can only imagine and stuff like that and then i would even say the blind side the blind side could have been a just as successful as it was if it if it was even more on the nose spiritually than it was because it was you know it's about a christian family i do i do believe that there is an interest in in christian movies and they can be significantly successful if they're good if they look and and feel like all the other movies i mean i think that even a movie like god's not dead the the majority of that audience i mean if you think about it so let's say it did 60 65 million dollars at the box office that means approximately 5 to to, to 8 million people went and saw it in theaters that's actually quite a low number if you're looking at, you know, whether or not this was a cultural phenomenon. So I think that there's a group of people who see movies like God's Not Dead and the Kendrick Brothers movies who see maybe one or two movies a year. That's just a, a small portion of the of the audience. The large portion, the big, the wide breadth that we're seeing with The Chosen, that we saw with Left Behind, which was my dad's book series, which we saw with, you know, The Passion, with I Can Only Imagine, which which we've seen with, I mean, it's hard to think of other examples because it hasn't been it hasn't been too many, but that that is possible. It's just you know extraordinarily difficult and requires a lot of money. This has been a very good discussion. I've like loved picking your brain about all of this type of stuff, Dallas. I just have one question as we kind of wind down our conversation on here, which is, you know, when you were looking for like source text and historical documents, did you just use the Gospels? for what you were really trying to do? Or did you go beyond that? Or did you pick like a particular gospel in particular? I would say the bulk of it, I mean, it starts, of course, with the gospels, the four gospels. We've we've borrowed from all of them. And in fact, you know, sometimes we choose one because that version of the story is better than the other version or it connects better to our people. So just give a very quick example. The calling of Simon Peter is talked about in multiple gospels and it's all different. So for example, when he's when Jesus goes finds him on the beach and says, come follow me. And and Simon f- drops everything and follows him after he has experienced a miracle of the fish. If you looked at the synoptic gospels, you would see that he probably called Jesus to follow him after he'd already met him, because it looks like he met him when Andrew introduced them, when John Always the Baptist. Always wondered about that. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you really combine all the gospels together and did what is the most likely plausible timeline, it's he met Simon but then he called him to be a disciple later. But if you just read one of the Gospels, 
forgive me, I'm blanking which one it is, where where the first time Simon Peter is introduced is when Jesus sees him on the water and he tells him to put his net on the other side of the boat and then calls him to follow him. You don't see before that in that gospel the introduction of Simon to Jesus. And so we told that version <laughs> where because it's it makes for really it makes for much better television if the, the first time Simon meets him is on the water. Just even just going within the four gospels, you you have you know you have moments like that where the wedding at Cana that says it's the first of Jesus's signs. So many people have interpreted that to believe that's the first miracle he did. Well, we we don't portray it as the first miracle he did. We portray it as the first public miracle that he did. Just examples like that. There's plenty to to, to do just by following the four gospels. Yes, we did go to other sources as well, historical sources. There are a few Gnostic gospels that we didn't treat as scripture, but but there are some great ideas from some of them and some of the apocrypha, some of the early church fathers writing about some stories that were handed down through oral history, oral tradition, some of which sound plausible. They weren't worthy enough to be canon. They weren't, maybe they were part of a larger book that that had other issues with it that they didn't include in the the, the actual Bible, but certainly contained things that were plausible within what we read in the Gospels as well. So, uh, but a lot of it is just honestly our study of human behavior. <laughs> when you look at Simon Matthew and, and Nicodemus, and you look at what they did. So, for example, Nicodemus in John chapter three is a believer that Jesus is the Son of God, but then doesn't kind of come out of the closet as a believer. You know, throughout the rest of the Gospel, like when you see him again later, he shows up at this discussion that they're having about Jesus, and he kind of gives this subtle mysterious defense of Jesus, like, ah, maybe we should hear him out, you know? Like, he doesn't come out and say, no, no, he's the Son of God. And he doesn't do that until Jesus actually dies, and then Nicodemus contributes tens of thousands of dollars to his burial. And so we kind of portrayed that as, huh, maybe Nicodemus was willing to believe, but wasn't quite willing to give up everything he had to to, to follow Jesus. Maybe he wasn't willing to be public about it. But then when Jesus died, he was. And maybe that was a guilt offering on his part. Maybe he regretted that. So we we took that and ran with it. Is it factual? Eh, I don't know. Is it plausible? I think so. What difference did it make that you watch a lot of like cable? I'm I'm trying to think of like the right word, prestige, like prestige TV. Yeah, prestige television and like, you know, what do they what do they call that kind of television that builds on builds on itself? The you mentioned Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights and and these these, these shows that certainly you watch you you know watch them in seasons. Well, like episodic. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Pure, pure, pure episodic. Not not self-contained as much. Yeah, yeah. These multi-season shows. I, well, it had a huge influence. You know, obviously, I'm not going to gain. I, I don't think the chosen spiritually is going to be impacted by a show like The Wire or Breaking Bad, for example, but. There's no question that when you watch shows like The Crown, Breaking Bad, Downton Abbey, Friday Night Lights, which is a huge influence on me and on The Chosen, you get a depth of character and a depth of storyline that you just can't get from a movie. And it's also, they just do it so well. I wish we Christian and evangelical filmmakers were, you know, there were more more of us. And I wish that it didn't take me so long before I could make a show like this, because I, I think it's so important to have have shows like this where you can get so deep into it. Because when I think you try to fit it into 90 minutes, sometimes you have to move quickly or you have to be more on the nose. And the subtlety that comes from a multi-season show and building a storyline over the course of multiple episodes or even multiple seasons, that's what I gleaned from some of these shows 
and they've had huge influences on The Chosen. I think The Chosen is a better show because I spent so much time watching such great shows. I don't apologize or, or <laughs> I'm, I'm not embarrassed for the fact that I've I've learned from or been influenced by what I believe is, is some of the best visual media creators in the history of, of humanity. Awesome. Just don't have Landry kill a guy in season two of The Chosen. That's all I ask. So that's, that's, you know, what you bring that, it's interesting you bring that up because he's talking about season two of Friday Night Lights, which is kind of notorious for the first six episodes, departing from its style and being more melodramatic and crazy because they were trying to gain ratings. Right. And that's for sure a lesson also learned as to stay in your lane, but also by doing a show outside the system, we're not beholden to anybody but God and maybe my wife. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I don't, I don't owe a studio who's writing a big check, they they don't dictate the rules. The rules are dictated by us. And of course, we're, we, we want to honor our 19,000 investors who all crowdfunded season one. But, but yeah, we don't have to do make choices just for the sake of ratings. We're just trying to make the great a great show that honors God. Well, thank you so much. I really just loved all the examples and insight that you shared with us about your thought process. Maybe you can just remind people really quickly where they can catch the show. Yeah, so the show is not on Netflix and the mainstream channels. You just go to your app store or Google Play, wherever you get your phone apps. You look up The Chosen. We're very easy to find. And then you download it. It's totally free. Now, you may think, I don't want to watch a show on a phone, which I would say you shouldn't watch it on your phone. I would agree with you. (laughs) Why VidAngel created technology, literally unprecedented, that allows you to connect directly to your streaming device. So Roku, Apple TV, Fire Stick, Chromecast. You can watch all eight episodes of season one totally free, no subscription. You don't even need to give your email address. Um, <laughs> 100% all eight episodes completely free. You can be watching on your television within minutes. And if you say, I'm not a techie, I don't have a, you know, a Roku or Fire Stick, that's fine too. But uh, I would then you'd then be able to get the DVDs, which we do offer on the app. Those aren't free. Or I would encourage you to go get a Fire Stick or a Chromecast. They're very cheap and easy and make watching The Chosen that much more pleasurable. And then uh, as you hinted at at the beginning, we have this big Christmas special coming up this Sunday night, which is on our Facebook and YouTube pages. So if you just look up The Chosen on Facebook or YouTube, we're also very easy to find. And at 8 o'clock Eastern on Sunday night, 8 o'clock Eastern, we have a two-hour Christmas special that has artists such as Chris Tomlin, Forking and Country, Mandisa, Hillsong United, Matt Mayer, Zach Williams, Piano Guys, Bill Wickham, all performing Christmas songs specifically for this special. Most of them actually came to the set of The Chosen and performed the songs on the set. We're also going to be showing the Christmas short film that I made that started the whole Chosen thing. It was the pilot episode of The Chosen. And you guys might be interested in this. We are showing a two and a half minute highlight reel from what we've filmed of season two already. You want to get a sneak peek of season two, that's going to be there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dallas. For people who have feedback for us about this show, You guys have been giving us so much feedback lately. Please continue to send us your thoughts. You can do so at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, where we get to hear from all of you guys about your thoughts about our show. So I'm going to read a letter right now from Kristen Shepard. Kristen is writing about the episode that we recently did about Carl Lentz and Close and Hillsong. I'm a big fan of the Quick to Listen podcast. I reviewed it and gave it five stars. I also subscribed to the magazine as a result of listening to the podcast. 
We appreciate that. Kristen, I also just read your review on Apple Podcasts and it was also really nice. So thank you so much for supporting that show and I'm ready to dive into the feedback that you have for us. You say this, I didn't really understand the point of the most recent podcast on celebrity pastors. It didn't seem to provide much in the way of possible answers to the questions about our what our culture's fascination with the Hillsong aesthetic reveals about the church. The speakers on the podcast expressed a general discomfort with celebrity pastors who wear expensive fashionable clothing but they didn't directly say why they were uncomfortable, except alluding to materialism. This podcast would have been enhanced by a discussion of what scripture says about clothing. One passage that comes to mind is James 2, about clothing, favoritism, and discrimination against poor brothers and sisters. I think some people are concerned that celebrity pastors are showing favoritism or contributing to the division between rich and poor, but I didn't hear this directly addressed. In future podcasts, I think it would be beneficial to consider relevant scriptures. I don't need a sermon, but church culture should be informed by scripture. If it's not, or if Christians disagree on how to apply scripture, that's worth discussing. Thank you for providing a podcast that's expanded my knowledge about Christianity and kept me intellectually engaged. I think this is fantastic feedback, and I do agree with what you're saying, Kristen. Thank you for pointing that out and for making me want to go back to my Bible to read more about this. Great, great letter. I love it. I love it. More Bible. You know, uh... <laughs> Always looking for more Bible. So maybe we should have led today's episode with, if anyone adds anything to the words written in this book, let God add to him the curses described in this book. We had Dallas respond to that. But. Well, now it's officially in the episode because you said it. So. in the episode. <laughs> I'm going to go to the next letter. Morgan and Ted, I can't thank you and CT enough for this podcast because I am so hungry to listen to Christians talk about the issues we have in 2020 from a well-informed vantage point that rarely invokes black and white us and them thinking. Thank you. I loved the podcast about Advent and the Second Coming. I came to Jesus in college in 1973 after reading Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Wow. (laughs) Right? That's awesome. While the Second Coming was a huge part of my walk initially, I wasn't in a fellowship that centered on that. Rather, I was discipled in all the other topics that were important to living and growing as a Christian. I came to realize that if you dwell on the second coming, you will not grow into the love of Christ because you spend all your time and energy trying to figure out which world leader is the Antichrist or, as you mentioned, determine the time of Christ's return. Interestingly, this topic is more on my front burner now than in the past 30 years. I've become concerned about the mixture of Christianity and nationalism that seems to have become more apparent, to me at least, during the Trump presidency. I feel that a segment of Christianity has, quote, decided that since Jesus has apparently been delayed in bringing his kingdom to earth, that it is now necessary for churches in America to bring the kingdom of God to America, and by creating God's kingdom on earth, then Jesus will return. I feel this is one of the many deceptions that Jesus and the apostles warned us about before virtually every discussion about Jesus' return in the scriptures. Sincerely, Lynn Kelly of Polson, Montana. Thank you. I also have noted that many of the things that we... (laughs) I, I read in the 70s and early 80s warning us about what things would look like when the Antichrist comes do do seem to be going on in the in the world right now and not necessarily by the people I expected it from. So yeah, thanks for your letter on that. That was a great one, Lynn. And also I ate really good Korean food in Polson, Montana this year. So oh, man. shout out to Polson. I love the <laughs> Polson connection. All right. This is from Kathy Lewis. I've loved your podcast for a long time. I'm so glad that Morgan isn't leaving the podcast when she moves. Me too. Wouldn't be the same without her. I often feel when I listen to Christian sermons and discussions that I'm on a different planet from the rest of the church. 
This week's discussion of the second coming was an example of that. I'm a baby boomer who grew up on the late great planet Earth, so my background is pretty typical, I guess. But I don't want Jesus to come back too soon. I have a lot of non-Christian friends and relatives, and I'm hoping that Jesus waits long enough so that some of them then come to faith before his return. I think that one of the attractions of dispensational eschatology is that it gives our unbelieving friends a second chance. When the rapture happens, they get a wake-up call and then have seven years to change their mind. Too bad I don't believe that anymore. (laughs) That's keeping it real, Kathy. Anyway, thanks for giving me something to think about every week. You're very welcome. That was a very real letter, huh? Very real. Bible and evangelism, that's where these letters are at. I'm thrilled about it. Last letter, this is from Jamie. In discussing false prophecies about the end times, where the second coming of Christ was claimed to be on a date that came and went, the word embarrassing was used instead of what the Bible says about false prophecies. It's clear from the Bible that false prophecies are not of God, and the purveyor of false prophecies are to be rejected as a teacher of God. So it's terribly unfortunate that what was said, that this was said to be embarrassing. That's a human way of looking at the problem. We must follow God's guidance and reject the teachings of those who do this. When we reject this teaching, then I think we can look at the second coming differently. I believe that each Christian must be informed that the second coming can be at any time. The details surrounding when Jesus will come again are not clear enough for anyone to be able to establish a time. The only thing that can be said about them is that they are a warning for those who think that they don't need to spend the time to refill their lamps or to spend time in prayer getting the fuel of God to keep us close to him in waiting for the bridegroom. Amen, Jamie. Preach it, and I will turn the pages. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we need to be ready. I'm thrilled that we're still in an Advent season of thinking about this, and I'm thrilled for the reminder that Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be it's going to be good. I just want to say, guys, the caliber of audience feedback has been fantastic in 2020. Definitely one of the best parts of doing the show this year. Thank you, Ted. I think we can attribute that to you for making this more of a focus. So people keep sending us awesome feedback and we will keep reading it because I love it. And a bunch of you guys made really interesting points in your letters. So send us emails, podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone shares something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you have something for us? I do. I'm going to go back to Ted's board game updates because it's been a while and Christmas is coming up. Feel free to DM me on Twitter if you are looking to buy a board game for a loved one this Christmas. I will try to be your board game sommelier and pair a board game with what might work well for you. (laughs) Board game sommelier. That's great. So the one I, I recently played, I picked up, is called Parks. It is, I I mentioned it real briefly in a previous podcast when I was uh, decided to talk about something else. They did a really nice job of theming this game where you are hiking through different national parks. Well, you're hiking through kind of a broad park and then you are kind of acquiring things to be able to go to other parks. So that's a little bit weird on the theme, but you're stopping and refilling your canteen water. You are dealing with different weather like uh, uh, rain and sun. And you're collecting, if you're the kind of uh, national parks person like I am, where you like to kind of collect those stamps and that like fake passport thing, there's a kind of uh, similar vibe to collecting cards of the different national parks. The artwork is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful board games that we own. In some ways, felt like walking through parks. It didn't feel as cutthroat, even though it's, you know, it's definitely a competitive game, but it doesn't like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have like, you know, knights and swords and you know, magic potions and all the stuff that sometimes you have in, in some of these board games that target young men with disposable incomes. 
Uh, Parks, strong recommendation for me. Just enjoying our Adventish time here. We we are kind of part Advent, but we're going hard on Christmas for for the Anglicans that we are. I'm enjoying it. Oh, uh, I'm on social. I should say that if I'm going to ask people to to message me on on social with board game questions. Ted Olson, T E D O L S E N. Morgan Lee. Do you want to share your email address? Sure, why not? It's T Olson, T O L S E N at christianitytoday.com. I feel like my precious moments around this time tend to be very similar, which <laughs> generally evolve around Christmas activities. And I'm pretty sure I've done this precious moment before, which is Christmas lights. So I was in this neighborhood the other day. I think it's maybe two different ones, Albany Park, Avondale, and Chicago. And apparently there's a guy in this neighborhood who last year began making these, for letter, for lack of a better word, like arches out of PCP pipes that have Christmas lights decorated on them. And he flyered the entire neighborhood. And now there are probably like 400 or maybe 600 of them. Wow. And they go over sidewalks. So... Most of the lots that have them have like three per lot. So it's just like blocks and blocks of getting to walk underneath them. It was truly impressive how many there were. I appreciate my or our colleague Jeremy for giving me a heads up to go walk around that area. So I walked around and saw all of those Christmas lights, which is really awesome. Also with another coworker. And then I have a friend who lives in this particular neighborhood who whenever I'm in that neighborhood, I always text her and I'm like, are you around? And so after we had walked around this, she invite, she and her husband invited us to go hang out and eat fudge on their back deck and catch up with her before I leave. So that was a really just awesome Christmas night. I have learned from experience that if people bring out blankets that were in their home, it feels like they took those blankets out of a dryer. <laughs> That's how cold it is outside <laughs> and how warm it is. Yeah, warm it is inside in contrast. But I've had a lot of just wonderful moments with folks as I prepare to leave. And that was definitely one of the best ones. So shout out to it being Christmas and beautiful and also seeing awesome people that I love. People That's could great. find me. On Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Yes, it was great. I agree. Dallas, over to you. Just last night, my wife and daughter and I finished watching The Queen's Gambit. Oh, so yeah. You're a fan of The Queen. I, I, I've, uh, I go even further. <laughs> the Queen's Gambit is what I'm a fan of. Mature audiences only. There's no nudity or anything like that, but it's got a little language uh, here and there, kind of like The Crown. I, I love whenever I'm able to, because my, my wife and I are big TV watchers and movie watchers, of course. It's my career. But whenever we can watch something as a family and equally enjoy it, that's always fun. So The Queen's Gambit on Netflix just finished it. And so the last episode really had a nice, just a lovely moment. So that was that was really cool. And we started watching as a family Cobra Kai together, which is also on Netflix. That's been a big fun kind of take us back to take Amanda and me back to the 80s when we watched The Karate Kid. So that's a, a good a good show on Netflix. Also for mature audiences, I, I wouldn't say it's for, for young kids. It's, it's fun when I'm in the middle of, of trying to do my own show to be able to enjoy other shows as well. And it makes me think, gosh, if, if there are people who are having the experience with my show that I'm having with, with these other shows, that is really a, a beautiful, beautiful gift. Every day when we hear from people whose lives are being changed because of The Chosen really is a, and I mean this genuinely, it, it is truly humbling. It's not a humble brag. It's a true humbling experience because what God has been doing with the show has been extraordinary, and uh, but it's fun in the middle of it to sometimes just enjoy someone else's show. <laughs> so that's been that's been really cool. You know, I mentioned the Christmas special already, but one of the cool things about the Christmas special that's coming up 
is that I'm a fan of it myself. You know, the artists that we got to perform. So for example, my wife and I have been listening to Phil Wickham's version of Away in a Manger on repeat for the last week, which he did for the show, for the Christmas special. And then Zach Williams doing Go Tell It on the Mountain. When I didn't do it, I didn't write it. I didn't film it. They did it. And our producer, you know, our production team filmed it. And it's then it's delivered and they go, all right, Dallas, here's the special. Give us your notes. And I'm like, I didn't do this, but it's awesome. Like I'm watching it as a fan. And it lives up to our, you know, the standards that we really want to set for not only quality, but but depth and meaning. That was a lovely surprise. I shouldn't say surprise, but it just it's it's really it's really fun when when you get moved by by something that's part of your project, but you didn't do anything. You, you didn't you didn't do it yourself. So that was a nice nice thing to be blessed by. And uh, if people want to connect with us, just look up Dallas Jenkins on Facebook and Instagram. I'm easy to find. Uh, what we do is I, I give every day behind the scenes videos, pictures, kind of the journey of this whole show. So if you like the chosen you're going to get a, a cornucopia of delights of behind the scenes uh, sneak peeks that you can't get anywhere else when you follow Chosen or myself on uh, social media. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Bunia Shola and the music is done by Sweeps. If you have feedback for us, podcast at christianitytoday.com is your email address. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast. And if you want to give us more general feedback on the show, go to Apple Podcasts. We are available wherever you listen to your podcast. If we came up on your Spotify wrapped, you should tell us because I really want to know. Thank you everyone for listening to the show and we'll see you next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.